Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. <clears throat> okay, you know that uh, you've had a good worship experience when you're a little hoarse after singing, right? And by little horse, I don't mean a Shetland pony. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Now, as you will notice, Dan read a passage of Scripture that's kind of in the middle of the passage of Scripture we're going to be considering this morning. Because as we come to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we find the Apostle Paul leaving the island of Cyprus and going back to the mainland, which would be modern-day Turkey. And he goes there with intention. His intention is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone who will listen. That's the heart of a missionary. And Paul had the heart of a missionary because he understood the heart of God. God wants people to know him. And he sends his messengers that they might hear how they can do that, how they can come into that personal relationship with him. And so here is Paul on a special mission, led of the Holy Spirit, to go from Paphos on to the mainland, to Perga, to Pamphylia, and then ultimately, when we come to the 14th verse, we find that he went to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this was something that was well inland, some 100 miles. And if you can imagine what it would be like to traverse overland 100 miles by foot, you get a picture of the passion that Paul had to go and carry the gospel to these people. Bear in mind that geographically, you're going from sea level to almost 4,000 feet when you go to Antioch Pisidian. And many of the mountain passes that Paul and Barnabas would have had to traverse were passages that required you to go through areas where there were bandits that lay in wait for anyone who would pass by. So the cost of bringing the message of the gospel to those in this Antioch was great. But Paul was willing to pay that. Why? Because he wanted to point people to the gospel's relevance to them. He wanted them to hear the power of God's message and whatever it took to get from where he was to where they were, he went about it. He was very intentional. In verse 13, it says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see more about John leaving them a little later in the book of Acts. For now, Luke just sort of lays it out there. But then we go on, and it says in verse 14, from Perga they went to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and they sat down. You know, Paul had a strategy. Whenever he would go into a new area, he would go into that new area and first go to the synagogue. Why? Because... He wanted to prepare by sharing with people that he understood. 
He understood the audience in the synagogue. And from there, he could launch into learning about and sharing with those who were outside the the synagogue. So he goes to the synagogue first, to the Jew first, and he shares the gospel. He shares with them the truth of who God is. And the synagogue was a wonderful place to go and to start that work because what do we find? When he went into the synagogue and he sat down, verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. You know what you got to do when you went into a synagogue? You got to speak, especially if you were an outsider, but a part of Israel. And this was who Paul was. He had grown up in the synagogue. He understood the people. He understood their need. He understood that they were looking for a Messiah that came in the person of Jesus Christ, and yet they couldn't recognize him. So he understood that he needed to go and share with them the person of Jesus Christ so that they could see that Jesus is the promised one that they've been looking for, the one that they've been longing for. Paul went to share that truth with these people. Very, very intentional about it. So he brought his understanding and he shared with them a relevant message. And the relevant message is this. Jesus, he's who you need. He's who you've been waiting for. God has answered your longing in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, when we share the gospel... We're not just sharing a collection of thoughts or theological positions. We're sharing life-giving truth with a world that desperately needs to know that truth. It's relevant to them. They just can't see it. So part of what we're to do is to bridge between the relevance and truth of Scripture to where they are so that they can grasp that truth and respond to the gospel. That's what God calls us to do. And that's what Paul and Barnabas was doing. They were there to share the gospel and to show how it applies to each one of our lives. But then the text continues. And when we come to verses 16 through 25, we find the truth that Jesus is God's provision for salvation. Look at what we find as we come to this 16th verse. Paul had just been asked, Would you like to say a word of encouragement? Man, that is like throwing a T-bone to a pit bull. He is ready to share, right? He is going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly and truthfully. And this is what he does. Verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now, twice in this passage, we're going to see addresses by the Apostle Paul where he identifies his audience. And his audience was comprised of men of Israel, people with a spiritual background who would have respected the Scriptures, but also God-fearing Gentiles. These were people who had come and were interested in the things of God, and they sat in the synagogues, and they listened So there was a spiritual hunger on the part of these God-fearing Gentiles. And there was truth about God and the coming Messiah. And what a great starting point 
for the Apostle Paul. So then he continues in the text, and what do we find? The Word, or the, the God of the people of Israel, chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. What Paul begins with is this. The covenant God that you worship is a God who has loved you and provided for you. He delivered you from slavery in Egypt. And He brought you into another country. And then, when God had done all of that for you as a covenant people, what did you do? Look at verse 18. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. What happened during that 40 years in the desert? If you remember, God had opened the way for Israel to go into the promised land. But Israel refused to enter because of unbelief. And so for 40 years, as a nation... An entire generation died because of unbelief. They wandered in the wilderness, not experiencing what God had promised them as a people, not because God didn't deliver on the promise, but because the people refused to believe. Do you see where Paul's going with this? You see, just as the ancients refused to believe and refused to experience the promise of God by going by faith into the promised land, here in Paul's day in the synagogue were people who had the Messiah right before them in the person of Jesus Christ. But because of unbelief, they crucified him. And their unbelief brought them to the place to where they could not experience all that God wanted them to experience. And so as a consequence, wandering, They were spiritually wandering. You know, there are people today who see the truth of who Jesus is. They recognize their need. They recognize that Jesus is the solution to that need, but they're spiritual wanderers. They don't come to the place to where they place their faith in the truth of who Jesus is. And they miss out. They wander. So here are these spiritual wanderers, verse 18. And then eventually what happened? God brought them into the promised land, verse 19. He overthrew other nations in Canaan and he gave this land to his people as their inheritance. And all of this took about 450 years. But then look at this. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. So God was allowing them to live and be victorious in the promised land. And he had judges over them who were spokesmen for God, leaders of Israel. But then Samuel came on the scene. And Samuel was a prophet. And notice verse 21, then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. You see what happened? Man was under God's rule through the judges, but that wasn't good enough. All of these people in the synagogue would have known the Old Testament history behind this, and they would have remembered that the people said, we want a king, not God, 
but a king. And God gave them one. And when God allowed them to have what they asked for, what they wanted in the person of Saul, what happened? The wheels fell off the wagon. It was a terrible choice. Saul was a terrible king. No heart for God. But then God did something else. He testified concerning him, or excuse me, after removing Saul, verse 22, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So God brought in a good king. And in addition to giving them David, something unique happened. God made a promise to David. And the promise to David was a Messiah would come. What is a Messiah? Messiah is the anointed one of God, the one who will deliver God's people. And that person, as we know him, is Jesus Christ. Now, the deliverance of the people was not a political deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance. So in this text, God makes this promise to David, a man after his own heart. And he says, verse 22, again, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David Son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And then verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus is the ultimate in God's purpose and plan. And this was where Paul wanted to bring them. He had to take them from where they were to where Jesus is. And so he shares with them that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God promised in David. You know, part of evangelism, again, is showing the relevance of Jesus. And if they're going to see Jesus as relevant, they have to see him for who he is. He is the promised one of God, the son of God. He is the savior who came and lived among us and died on the cross for our sins. These people needed to see Jesus. And that's where Paul brings them. He brings them to the place to where he can fulfill what they've been longing for because he already had. He is the promised one of God. And he makes it crystal clear in that 23rd verse where he said he brought the Savior Jesus as he promised. Then look at verse 24. Before the coming of Jesus... John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think that I am? I am not the one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Here, we find John the Baptist, the most recent prophet, identified Jesus. When you look in the Gospels, John the Baptist said, that one is coming whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then when he saw Jesus, remember his words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Jesus that Paul is presenting in the synagogue. And the people needed to hear that. But then he goes on. When we come to verse 26, we see him once again address his audience he wanted to prove that Jesus is indeed the one who saves. 
but not in the way that they imagined the Messiah might save. You see, for the average Jew, there was the hope of a political deliverer. They were under the thumb of Rome. And they wanted someone who would overthrow the government and establish the promises concerning the Messiah and the kingdom right then and right there in their lifetime. But Jesus came to deliver them spiritually before they experienced the promises politically that they were looking for. So in verse 26, he says, Brothers, children of Abraham and God-fearing Gentiles. So again, repeating those same thoughts and moving into this theme. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. He's talking about the privileged opportunity that they have to hear the message of salvation that God is sending to them. Listen, when we share the gospel, we need to remember that we are carrying a powerful message, the very message of transformed lives, of deliverance from sin. It is the power of God unto salvation that we bring to others. And we need to see it for what it is. Because if we don't believe that it's the power of God to salvation, why will they? So we'd better be committed to that understanding. This is the power of God to salvation. We were sent and this message was sent by the very power of God. And then look at verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed when they had carried out all that was written about him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now Paul shifts into the national and personal responsibility that the children of Israel took upon themselves. God sent Messiah in the person of Jesus. They rejected the Messiah that God had sent. Just as they rejected in the time of Moses and didn't enter the promised land, just as they rejected in the time of Samuel and asked for a king apart from God, now when Jesus himself had come, when God in the person of the Messiah had come, they rejected him saw to his crucifixion. And his message would have appealed to Jew and Gentile alike. Because it says the Jews went to the Roman Pilate and together they crucified the Lord. But here's the wonderful truth. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not the end. We do not worship a Savior who still hangs on a cross. We worship the risen Christ. We worship the one who was dead, but is now alive. And that's why in this passage, Paul closes it out by saying, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now witnesses to our people. Crystal clear evidence that Jesus 
is raised from the dead. And why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Because it demonstrated his victory over death. And what is a victory over death? Victory over death is victory over sin. Death is the result of sin. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was a demonstration to all, I have conquered sin and death. And God raising him from the dead vindicates Jesus. It demonstrates that that sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Paul says this. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who delivers. By the power of his resurrection, there is the demonstration that he is the son of God. Then 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The passage tells us this. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the body, was vindicated. That means declared righteous by the Spirit. Was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world. Now look at this last part. Was taken up in glory. The resurrection. In order for Jesus to be taken up in glory, what had to happen first? He had to be resurrected. So the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ needed to resonate in the hearts and the minds of these people. And then we come to the 32nd verse. Paul begins to proclaim the good news that Jesus forgives sins. Look at verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. A clear statement needed to be made that the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is the one promised by the fathers and all that they needed is fulfilled in him. But Jesus is so much more than just a man, just a person. Look as the text continues. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God was talking about the unique aspect of the Messiah, that he's not just a man who delivers people politically, he is God, because he is the son of God. Every Jew would have understood what that meant. Son of God means God. And so Paul is establishing right there in the synagogue who Jesus is. He is God. He is Messiah. And then he goes on to another proof. He's using scripture. The second psalm stated, you are my son. But then he goes on to the next part of the passage and he says this, the fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. This again is something that is seen as a messianic passage and it's from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. He's associating the lineage of the Messiah with David and the promise of God. But then he goes on to another promise from Psalm chapter 16, and this is where he says this, you will not let your Holy One see decay. The idea of resurrection was not a new idea. It had been presented in God's word as a mystery, but there nonetheless. Because then we find the explanation given 
in the word of God for what's going on. Look at verse 36. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the womb, one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. What Paul is establishing with his Jewish audience, according to their Old Testament Bibles, is this. Jesus' resurrection was of God, and it was the fulfillment of a promise given to David. David died, and his tomb was right there in Jerusalem. His body decayed. But when Jesus died, he was resurrected. His body did not suffer decay. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they had longed for, all that they were looking for. And here is Paul to drive this home. So step one in evangelism, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He is the promised one who comes to fulfill all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. But then he moves to the next part. Jesus is the very power of God to justify us. Justify means God declares us right with him. And Jesus is the only way to experience that. So look at verse 38. When we come to verses 38 and 39, we see a powerful part of the passage. Listen, if you've tuned out for a minute and your eyes are glazed over from all of the Old Testament passages we've been looking through, dial back in, okay? This is an important part of the passage, but listen to what is said. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. One of the most important things that we can communicate when we communicate the gospel is that Jesus, and only Jesus, brings the forgiveness of sins. The people in the synagogue had their own idea about what they wanted in a Messiah. And let me tell you, today, people have their own idea about what they want in Jesus. That is the part that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter what we think or what we want when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is who he is. He is the Son of God. He doesn't adapt to our image of what he ought to be. We are to yield to who he is and who he is as Savior. The risen one. The one who has the power and the authority to forgive sins. Listen, if you go anywhere else for the forgiveness of sins, you will find nothing. Jesus alone forgives sins. And that's what's being established in this verse. Verse 39 says, Through him, everyone who believes is justified. That means made right with God from everything you could not be justified from the law of Moses. Crystal clear, isn't it? How do we experience forgiveness of sins? How do we experience being made right from God? Paul's point to these people is clear. You tried going down the road of good works. You observed the law. You did everything that you could as far as living a righteous life, but you failed. And all of us fail. None of us reach perfection, no matter how hard we try. So what is God's solution? 
forgiveness of sin. And that forgiveness of sin comes only through Jesus Christ. How do we receive that forgiveness of sins? Well, if the works didn't work before, they're not going to work after. We receive forgiveness of sins by simple faith in Jesus. Whoever believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's what the scripture teaches. That's what the people needed to grasp. That's what they needed to understand. Listen, it is hard for people to believe. When we look at every religion out there, there's some sort of human contribution to coming into a right relationship with God, right? Every one of them. There's something I must do in order for God to accept me. But the gospel is unique. It's not what we do, it's what Christ did that brings the forgiveness of sin and right standing with the Father. And that's what Paul wanted to communicate with his audience. That they needed to come to that place to where they believed and stopped believing in their own personal performance and their own ability to earn a relationship with God and embrace the truth that Jesus forgives sins. And he's able to do so because he is God and because he's risen from the dead. That's the message of this gospel. Final thought. The scripture tells us that you perish as a consequence to rejecting him. Again, there's ample examples of this. Those who were in belief in the wilderness, the entire generation did what? Perished. But here, when we look at this text, the result of rejecting what God has presented to us as the opportunity for forgiveness of sins means that we perish spiritually. Look at verse 41. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. You know what Paul is doing as he concludes the gospel? He's talking about the consequences of rejection. And he's quoting from the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet who gave prophecy prior to the Babylonians coming in and taking over Jerusalem. And what he was warning the people of Jerusalem about in this text was the coming judgment that none of them would anticipate, but that it would come upon them because they hadn't turned to God. And his warning was stark. Don't scoff at my words. Receive them. You see, for the people of Israel, there was the idea, we're in Jerusalem. This is God's city. We are God's people. So nobody's going to come in and take over the city, Habakkuk. Just go away. We're not going to listen. Perhaps Paul sensed some in his audience who had very much the same idea. Maybe he sensed that some of them were resisting the message of forgiveness of sins in Jesus. 
He wanted them to understand that rejecting the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus does for us and insisting that I will earn my way to God on my own merits brings consequences. And listen, while it's not popular to share that truth with others, it's a vital truth of the gospel. There are consequences to rejecting the gospel. Jesus had an interview with Nicodemus and he warned him about the importance of believing by saying this, whoever believes in him, him referring to Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The gospel is good news. We can be delivered from this when we believe in him. But we're doing a disservice we don't share with them the potential for consequence as well. And so this is what Paul did with his audience. And listen, if people don't understand consequences, they may not see the relevance of what the gospel has for them. This morning we've seen the importance of sharing the power of the gospel message. Let me encourage you, be people who are intentional about sharing the gospel with others. It's vital that we do so. Listen, I went a little bit long this morning, so I think we're going to cut the last song. And I would ask you to stand with me at this time, and we will close in prayer. Let me express to the worship team how much I appreciated their ministry to us this morning. Such a wonderful time to, to be together as a